Guys, I just have to tell you, over the last 15 minutes, I went through a physical roller coaster where my like, feet were up and I had a bunch of coffee and tea this morning. And I got like very convinced I was going to throw up. And oh, then I God. got like super sweaty and clammy and I like, and then like really lightheaded. And, and I was like, oh my God, do I need to go throw up in the bathroom? Like right now, I'm I noticed... on the other side of it. But yeah, I had this moment where I was like, I am about to like throw up or pass out. You may want to drink some water or something. You're right. I haven't had yeah. any water yet. I'm just going to go yeah, get a cup regulate that, real quick. That state. everyone welcome to a very ethereal uh episode of batman in quarantine don't trust your senses because on this episode batman 682 we're in the land of the lump and you can't even trust your memories i'm drunk on love and in the land of the lump i am jeff figley as always i'm justin and i'm drunk on love (laughs) And and i'm roman lump 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 I'm, I'm glad that we got a I'm glad it I'm glad it I'm glad we got something out of that everyone. Yeah, no, I loved it. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, you always um, bring us into a a good ceremonial space to You know, to we got to make sure the sacraments have been burnt and the the rhythms have been established and the hands are being held. Um gosh, I hope my internet holds out for for today's episode. Episode man, 20 lump Oh, okay. We could just keep lump referencing. Um, <laughs> this it. is episode 25. I lump it too. Uh, <laughs> this is part one of a two-issue arc called Last Rites that existed as a tie-in to Final Crisis. And, you know, I struggle to say it exists very well outside of that. Um, <laughs> but I am incredibly excited to talk to everybody about it. And I, I imagine we're recording this a little bit ahead of time, but I imagine we're going to dump the, uh, the huge bloated final crisis episode we did on the perfectly acceptable podcast into this feed to sort of inform people about what final crisis is. We talked a little bit about these two issues in there, but for right now, we're going to really just pick, pick this first one apart. Oh yeah. Sit down and pour your glass, your self. A glass of lump juice? Lumpinade? Yeah, lumpinade. Fuck. <laughs> Sit down and pour yourself a big old cold glass of lumpinade. Get that in there somewhere, Jeff. You know, make oh, yeah, okay, a okay. commercial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's our intro. Maybe that's our intro today. <laughs> Belly up to the bat table for a nice big heap and help on a lumpsagna. Oh, lumpsagna was good. The lump is cold. The lump is cold for Batman 89 references. Um, So for anyone who needs the broad summary, who hasn't read the episode, the issue yet, this issue, for reasons that we don't fully understand through reading the first issue, seems to be an incorrectly told recounting of the history of Batman and how his origin story and how he met some of the Robins and developed the identity... And this confused me endlessly the first time that I read it. And I feel pretty comfortable with what these two issues do and what they're trying to do nowadays. But 
my first time reading this, I just super did not understand what is going on with it. I think a really important part of this is a basic understanding of the lump. And if you have never heard of that idea or that character is, is all the more confusing. Yeah. Jeff, do you have in your head, like a summation or a, an elevator, a one sentence elevator pitch that ends with a period of what the lump is? Well, I, 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 can, I will try, but I will also provide a little too much context up ahead. The Mr. Lump first appeared in Mr. Miracle number seven. It's a Jack Kirby creation. Uh, it's a new god character, but ultimately weapon that had been created by Granny Goodness in the original continuity and redone continuity. There's a tiny subtle bit of differences. So I can't remember if in the original one, uh, the lump was created by using some DNA from Darkseid. Okay. But, uh, it, it essentially um, had been, uh, I think it was weaponized against Darkseid at one point, but in reality, or sorry, I mean, the, the main crux of it in Mr. Miracle was that Granny Goodness has created it to make a trap for Mr. Miracle. It is a totally non-physical entity that can't move, but it has incredible psychic mental powers, and it was going to hopefully keep Mr. Miracle in this trap endlessly, except for Mr. Miracle uh, found a way to defeat it, which was by showing it its own visage in a mirror um, and destroying it. Does that sound right, Roman? You probably actually read all of those issues and I just read the summaries. You know, I don't think I read any reprints of those those issues until after I read this. Because I remember when I first originally read this, I was really confused and I was like... What the lump? Yeah, I was like, (laughs) who the hell is this lump? I mean, I knew Simeon and Makari, but um, I didn't know anything about the lump. And the lump does show up in this issue, right? Yeah. 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 Right at the end. Um, Not not all a reveal for the next one. Yeah, Justin, sorry. Oh, I I mean, you know, pointless, but uh, I I just love him. I love the Kirby imagination. You know, it's just like that kind of thing at that time could only come from Kirby's brain. And it reeks of it. You can smell the the curbness on the lump you know especially like the 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 aspect of you know as soon as he saw his own face his mental powers you know fell apart like that's a very kirby thing to me you know you stare in the mirror and realize what you truly are and that destroys us or something and you're just a lump yeah yeah it, it feels like so often you know kirby ideas and stories boil down to these really basic moral ideas and for sure. it, it, a lot of stuff is sort of just extrapolated from these moral thoughts instead of strictly long linear stories. I feel like Kirby had just like a pretty intuitive grasp of mythology and in the way that mm-hmm. not that I think that mythology is only psychology, but in the way that mythology often is psychology or vice versa. Kirby never ever like says that. But he like touches. He's his stuff is always within that. In my personal opinion, I agree. That's why I love him too. Is like he takes these very very personal observations of just like interpersonal conflicts or psychological conflicts, and then blows them up into this like mythical cosmic opera drama. And it's really easy to like think that those things are all there is. But then when you boil it down, like the lump, that's like your self hatred. You know, that's just like that's the basic humanity that you try to ignore your own fragileness and it's incre- incredibly psychic like and the yeah, and, and the anxiety and thoughts that trap us you know that yeah. like you know it, it is a psychic force that actually binds us and uh, unable to to see objectivity or an outside world roman smiling 
Uh, yeah, just think about and the fact, and I love the fact that he like names something like that that's so internal and, and traps you in your head and all that, <laughs> and it just calls it the lump. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's just this lump of of. Yeah. of I mean, that's like, Kirby. That's a self poison in your head. Yeah, it's like a cancer, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we we talked about this in the final crisis episode, but you know, I think Morrison is so much more Jack Kirby than he is Stanley. Oh, for sure. And you know, reading this Morrison run originally, I really didn't know a ton about Jack Kirby. And I think for a lot of people, Jack Kirby and his stories and art is something you kind of have to come to because it's not like a Jim Lee drawing where you're immediately like, wow, this is, you know, look at those clenched jaws and big muscles and cool costumes. Like Kirby, there is a not rudimentary, but there is like, it feels like someone trying rather than maybe just mastery, even though he was a master, but there, it feels like he never laid on, or, you know, rested on his laurels. He was always trying to do something or, um, I don't know. He seems like a really genuine, I don't know, but I, I just, I, without having a lot of basis or knowledge of Kirby going into this Morrison run, I find that I'm able to pull a lot more out of the whole thing knowing more about Jack Kirby and his creations. I think probably the same could be said for like Tom King's Mr. Miracle run. And I think the more that you know about Kirby, it really is, you know, it's like a basic English class you take in college or something that doesn't seem super exciting at first, but you learn a bunch of things that then future inform and create a foundation for your ability to understand a whole bunch of stuff. So if anyone is listening to this and they're not very well versed in Kirby, I would highly recommend everyone go check out some Kirby stuff. Right. I feel like I've only got Kirby through his, because for a long time when I was young, I couldn't get my hand. I just knew of the Kirby guy, but I couldn't get my hands on anything. Um, so I just like was like, I guess I'll learn it because Alan Moore is pretty influenced by Kirby too. Mm-hmm. And I would say Grant Morrison is the best channeler of Kirby's discarnate spirit. But um, like, I only know like secondary sources of Kirby. I don't know, but it helps to have that context. And I also feel like people, it's really easy to shit on superhero comics and say they're just kind of mass, kind of media. Lumps. Yeah, big pop culture lumps from, <laughs> for the masses without, but if you inject Kirby back into that lump, that's where you get all the depth and the kind of symbolic beauty yeah. that I think superheroes have that they rarely get. But Grant Morrison touches on that because he's very in tune with the Kirby vibe. Um, pop mythology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, so these two issues, basically, like I said, retell the origin of, of, of Batman, but it's not every, something is not quite right. And there are a bunch of missteps that we know. Like as we we're you know, going here, this, the issue opens with Alfred talking to Bruce Wayne and he's cleaning up a bunch of broken glass from the bat that in this broke a window in year one when Batman became Batman or had the idea to become Batman. And like right off the bat, we know, ha, uh, didn't mean to. But right at the beginning, we know uh, C- Cody Walker points out that that bat flew in an open window and it didn't break. So right on like page two and three here, we have um, Alfred is cleaning up the broken shards of this window and then he takes the carcass of the bat into a garbage and throws it away. Before year one was ever published, I think if my memory's right, I think the bat usually did crash through the window and break it. Oh, I guess I didn't. I don't know which one is and which one. Which one is the like? 
Which one is the real one, guys? Um, <laughs> I, I only know the year one reference. I didn't even know that there was a I thought in year one, that scene. I thought in year one, he does break through the window. Cody tells us that, and listen, if there's a fourth member of this podcast, <laughs> it is Cody Walker and his anatomy of Zero and He's R. the prime member, the prime but, mover. But if that part is wrong, our next page shows Bruce saying... Oh, and even in this narration, like Batman is saying, I'd already decided not to resign, and the window was open, not broken. So on page four, he's identifying that, wait, I'm having these memories. However, they don't fit with what I know as my memories. And that's kind of... I thought of, that was Alfred saying that. It is Alfred saying that. Oh, was that Alfred? Yeah, because he's saying he's okay. not, he's decided not to resign, but on the first page, he was... Right, right, telling right. Telling Bruce, he was... Well, I think it's something else interesting is which is never explained, but for some reason on this first page, Bruce sitting there brooding in his chair, he's wearing like a military jacket. I mean, it's not a military cut, but there's um, the, the gold bars on the shoulder. And I was like, what? why is he wearing a military type yeah, shirt? Yeah, that's a good, a good point as well. And it, either way, that military cut isn't as cool as either the moth outfit or snake no. outfit he has. <laughs> and no. So as Alfred points out, that discrepancy within continuity we then have Alfred talking about what other personas or fursonas, as Justin has brought up on the podcast, um, Batman could have taken. And he's got a moth identity and a snake identity. And I, I thought that, that was, you know, it just so much of this doesn't make sense unless you know what's going on with it. And it does start to make sense once you know what's going on with it. I yeah. guess I'm, you know, I have this real question of, I think that while I love these two issues, because I do think that like in the end of the second one, I read both of these this morning, I sort of teared up by what an amazing moral statement about Batman it is. And it is this, it ends in this great, great way that is a perfect Batman story, but it's really fucking confusing. And I can hear, like if Django were here, I think he would be saying something, you know, to the effect of like, I don't want to have to work this hard to figure out what's going on in a Batman comic. And that's not a huge flaw for me, but because I, I love the form that it takes, but it is one of those things that like, I'm curious how other people feel about these two issues because I, they work when they are in, you know, sandwiched between issues like six and seven of Final Crisis or whatever. But I think that they are a lot more confusing just as a random two Batman issues. I, I love these two issues because when, when we get to the part where you realize, that, oh, these are, these are like what if versions that Alfred had thought of just kind of as a mental exercise back in the day. And he's telling Batman about it as he's pulling a bullet out of Batman's shoulder. And it's a great conversation because Batman's just like, really? You came up with different identities for me? And I was like, yeah. What if a bat hadn't flown through the window? What if nothing had flown through the window? Would you be, have become the curtain, a stage themed adventure of evil? <laughs> yeah, I started with free association at that point. <laughs> I mean, mm. if we're reading this after R.I.P., as a, a reader going in fresh, we may already have a reason to suspect that Batman's history is a little funky and this might just be not the history that we know. Like there's already kind of a unreliable narrator thing. So as I was reading it, I was just like, oh yeah, this is just one of the many things that like is going wrong in Bruce's mind. Like, cause his memories are all fucked up and this is, you know, at this point we done know Batman's crazy. But that being said, I guess it took me a second to realize that it was like Batman's origin told through the Alfred's big quotes 
perspective, right? Well, yeah, I think the narration kind of bounces between at different times because there are times where Bruce is saying that he knows that this isn't how things went. Um, right. But that might be more in the second issue, whereas the first is all Alfred. Um, th- there's definitely both of them narrating it, but as we get further through it, the idea that Alfred would be able to narrate through it uh, doesn't seem logical since Alfred isn't through here. And it's actually, if anything, the lump and Bruce having these monologues within the whole thing. Yeah. That's why I did the scare quotes. Roman, does that, does that feel? Yeah, that, that, that feels right to me. And it's also just as the creator, it's also Morrison's kind of way of wrapping up a a couple little uh, character threads that he didn't get to mention before in Batman's history, like about Julie Madison. I mean, just, I thought it was just a way of him, mentioning a couple other things how everything in batman's history happened here's julie madison here's batwoman (laughs) and that's i i totally agree with that because there are aspects of this where you're like we're being fed an inaccurate history of what happened but then there's also moments of these of these two issues that seem to like really factor into yeah that morrison idea of i'm going to make everything fit so there's these even like the progression of the joker or the 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 progression of Batman being grim and then being like a sort of happier person with Robin. He even goes as far as to like say that when Batman got his heart broken, he didn't just go into the isolation experiment because he wanted to know the Joker. He was sort of reinventing himself from a a place of brokenness uh, in, in terms of getting over that. So these are like key moments that I think Morrison is, is trying to embed actually into the narration of, and you know, biography of batman but it's also through the guise of you know the unreliable narrator so it becomes it is a confusing exercise i think it's great but i I can just i think it's confusing for people who don't want to put the this kind of large amount of work in for it yeah yeah and and earlier you know before we started recording we're talking about the wire and it's like well yeah this is like the a type of wire story for the comics where it's just like well yeah you gotta put you can't just sit and passively watch it you you have to like pay attention and do a little bit of work and connections on your own yeah right i had to go back and reread a couple of these pages just to kind of like center my like okay where am i am i in batman continuity am i in mental illusion created by the lump who's narrating what um i did want to say that this reminds me of like if whatever happened to the cape crusader is you know dc hiring a really high caliber writer to give us a deconstructed batman from a really zoomed out point of view this is like kind of the opposite where it's it's really zoomed in within his continuity you have to know his continuity but you're seeing that still kind of reinterpretation of his entire life and what batman is like i feel like Neil Gaiman did his big piece in what happened to the Cape Crusader. It was like this very zoomed out, like, what if Batman's just a delusional child and all of this is fake? And it felt like kind of a very high caliber writer who doesn't necessarily love Batman that much doing it. And this feels like the same story, but from like a fan's perspective, like it's very zoomed out. We're watching moments of his life. We're seeing how kind of infantile and deranged Batman can be, but we're watching it from kind of a more empathetic standpoint. Because to me, I think the plot mechanisms are very similar. Like we're watching Alfred's perspective on someone who is not maybe fully in control of his mind. Yeah, I haven't read who whatever happened to the Cape Crusader in a long time, many years. But I also, throughout these two issues, kept coming back to that. And it does feel like there's a lot of overlapping similarities because it is sort of the story of Batman told through Alfred. Right. And just like, you know, we're watching again 
moments of his life reinterpreted from someone else's perspective. Um, and sometimes it's just like Bruce seeing his life in a new way, but there's such a beat of like understanding every moment of Batman's history and just a reverence for his character. Um, like, I, I really like what happened to the Cape Crusader, but I think it leans pretty hard on Bruce. It's just kind of dysfunctional and crazy. Mm-hmm. And this does a similar effect, but it, it shows that Bruce is actually like brilliant and still trying and growing. And I don't know. I really liked kind of, this is a thesis statement of like why, why and how Batman can still be a good badass dude. Yeah, yeah, it shows and showing the fact that like even with his you know emotional emotional issues whatever he he along the way tried to find you know made coping mechanisms. That's why he made made Dick Grayson Robin. He could have just adopted that kid and like tried to keep the Batman secret from him. Yeah, and yeah, it includes and all the. I mean, I love there's one panel that shows, for instance, the uh, the brief period when the Batmobile quote unquote was just a red car or rich guy's red sedan. Mm. <laughs> Cause that was actually in the comics for a little while in the forties. No uh, bat theme at all. <laughs> I, uh, I really love the incorporation and kind of distillation of Robin as kind of this way for Bruce to emotionally regulate himself or a way for him to cope with the kind of darkness that he once had. And then like Bruce has kind of got an attachment issue with robin like and that made the jason todd thing make so much more like poetic sense like bruce is kind of going after that imprint drug of the positivity that robin has and he'll continue to put himself in a situation where he can't caretake for a child and he gets the second robin killed because he's kind of chasing that after image of the first Robin because he talks about like how things were so much lighter then and so bruce kind of needs a robin to cope but clearly he's in no position to take care of a child. And so like, to me, I was like, Jason Todd dying not only makes sense because people in our world voted for it and that happened, but Morrison did a good way of like showing how that would be believable in Bruce's life. Like Bruce is needs Robin to have some kind of like false hope or some candlelight in the darkness. And like, because he's, he's not super in control of that, it gets him killed you know he's just like constantly needing a robin as like a, a coping mechanism and like when you do that when you have these improper methods to regulate yourself things go wiry and so that like gets robin killed and so i felt like that made a good internal sense like of course jason todd died like the robin that was bound to happen because bruce is in this relationship where robin is kind of the only positive thing you know we see that his love life is just constantly in ruins i think that of- this did a fantastic job like to what as to what you're saying you you know you and i love tim and we've learned that you know tim's argument is like batman needs a robin i think that that is true this does a great job of showing batman before robin and then batman with robin and then batman without robin again and what that does to his character and it's one of those things that as a reader or a batman you know we're all quote unquote batman historians if you're reading a batman comic you're trying to take into account a huge history so it's a thing that we hear but i think that this does a really good job to galvanize that point of like he he was a more effective human being when he had that around so you both know more about batwoman and batgirl than i do because katie kane is the original batwoman and then in this we see the original batwoman and batman having a romance with her i don't know too much about that romance um when it took place or 
what happened ultimately with it. But while that Robin is talking to him, he does, the Robin says like, you know, are we always going to be Batman and Robin? And Batman says like, well, like if I wear married Batwoman. And then he says, there's just something about her. I don't trust Bruce. Same with Batgirl. So did Batgirl and Batwoman exist at the same time? Yeah. Um, the Katie, Katie Kane, um, Batwoman, she had her own sidekick who was Batgirl, who was a Batgirl before Barbara Gordon Batgirl was introduced. Okay. Um, in fact, the difference is Barbara Gordon Batgirl, it's Bat hyphen girl. The original Batgirl was just Batgirl, no hyphen, all one word. <laughs> okay. Um, and I forget anything about her personality. She was just Batwoman's sidekick, and later on, they still had her in continuity, and she became Flamebird, who was a member of the Titans of the 70s. And then the <laughs> Superman characters got named after them. Yeah, and or she took that name. On. Yeah, she took that name from the Kryptonian characters um and that and that batgirl had a big crush on robin but he didn't want to have anything to do with her because yeah he didn't trust her or batwoman and i forget why well you know what's interesting is that morrison time and again in interviews and talking about batman is always like yeah batman was so gay like batman is this like very gay idea (laughs) and you know I, i love that idea of him saying that that's not a thing that ever like immediately in my reading of things like clicked or made you know wasn't what i got out of things this conversation sort of had that element to it to me of like, I don't trust her. Same with Batgirl. I don't like, it should just be us boys running around. And, no you girls know, allowed. exactly. And, you know, I don't know exactly what the underpinnings of Morrison's assumption about that is. I can see elements of it, but that, uh, that was an interesting part to me. We get Dr. Hurt in here. Like we do. we do get the justification for going into the isolation experiment after uh, the Katie Kane stuff go breaks bad. It seems like, does she, does she die in that moment that is shown here of them fighting this Greg Capullo-looking bat worm? Is that, like, what happened to Katie Kane? And we, you know, with avoiding any possible spoilers for the rest of the run, but what happened to her? You want to answer that one, Justin? Yeah, I guess I'll briefly. So Katie Kane was a character that I really liked and tried to, like, suss out. She was a character in continuity, and Batman and her got married. And eventually, I don't know when this happened, but they had to retcon that because they, they had Huntress, um, who the original Huntress was Bruce Wayne's daughter. Bruce and Kathy or Katie Kane's daughter. No, wait, that's... Oh, that's oh. Earth 2, yeah. Yeah, but they, they had to retcon that and put it on Earth 2. So back in the day, Earth 2 was like all the stuff that they couldn't fit in our continuity because they mm-hmm. wanted to cut it out. Earth 2 is that. So that's like the alternate universe. And so for when she first showed up, that was Earth 1. But they couldn't fit her into Batman's ongoing story, so they created Earth 2 for all those, like, you know, extraneous things there. And so the reason why she just kind of fades away is that she goes to Earth 2. I think that's why that's in here. Um, Interesting. Like I said, I've tried to collect all that. I was really into Earth 2, for which is a weird thing but i was super into all the earth 2 shit i could get for a while um and i really like that character um earth 2 nightwing is very cool too so i think that's like his meta narrative of like this is what happens when you get wiped out of continuity (laughs) boom (laughs) i like that yeah very much some great like summary moments of again continuity i do really like so after he's done the isolation experiment he's hanging out with robin again and they're even kind of referencing the batman 66 stuff because batman's got like you know a joker card with an ace a card begins with a c you know robin says c 
holy seaplane display in Gotham Harbor, you know, like hearkening to that. But then this moment of Batman saying, all of this is for him. I hate the pranks and the puzzles. I'm tired of playing games with clowns and quiz masters and circus people. I train to be a soldier. And I really liked that line of dialogue because it also kind of creates a reasoning as an internal motivator for Batman to have gone from the 70s Batman to the 80s Batman of dark and gritty. It's not, he found a justification that, you know, gave Alan Moore and Frank Miller's stories credence, which is he feels like he was destined for a more soldier-like, intense, aggressive war on crime. Yeah, he wants to, like, destroy crime, not play games with it, you know. And that seems like a good segue into the dark eras of Batman. I just, like, sorry, was curious. In this, they mentioned how Joker's pathology is constantly evolving. And, you know, that's kind of the meta statement of the Joker is that Mm -hmm. he's constantly uncontrollably changing. And I felt like this kind of, there's an undertone of Bruce is always doing that as well. Like he's constantly evolving and changing and maybe a little more intentionally. Um, But, you know, this Bruce is like, okay, I've had my fun with this kid stuff. I want to go back to destroying crime. Like he, he, you know, he is always building a new Batmobile. And in that way, there's another parallel between Joker and Batman. Like they can never stay the same right and as this issue starts to wind down or gets to some of the more uh arrow pointing ideas of what's going on here we get this conversation uh between alfred and bruce after dick has left and alfred says you know they're referencing a dream or something but alfred says not so much a dream master bruce as an idle fancy i came across among my own papers i made up a story once when your spirits were rather low ebb um, and he references it. I wrote it not long after my own unlikely death and resurrection. That's something that I just, I don't know anything about the time that Alfred died and was resurrected. Do, it certainly is a thing that happened in older Kanu. Do, do either of you know anything about that? Yeah, that was, and they reference it a couple pages before that when after there's that top panel of lump, they're at a funeral and that's right. when Al, Alfred had been killed. Yeah, he was it was in the it was in the 60s i think it was 60s he was killed um and a short while later this new villain called the outsider showed up it was eventually re- and he knew all sorts of stuff about batman and robin knew their identities they didn't know why and then it was revealed that that was alfred and i forget how but he had been revived but <laughs> it like took away his morality or something and turned and turned him into this weird white looking dude with these skin rash or whatever <laughs> called the outsider um and he was trying to destroy batman and robin um i think because he was pissed off that the, they let him die or something he blamed them for his death yeah, and I, yeah and i forget somehow they cured him and he was back to normal alfred <laughs> and it's interesting they we don't hear him expressly state that it in this issue but we know that that line of dialogue is what caused bruce to know that something is going on that is not real. This isn't a memory. This isn't a dream. Something, something is bad is happening, and he resolves that he's coming to get it. And then we sort of tie into this other narrative for the last couple of pages that Alfred had had written about, which is a world in which Bruce's parents hadn't died, and what what could have happened. And that's a really interesting last little bit in this issue. More a part of tomorrow's episode, but. And then we we sort of end with this conversation between <laughs> uh, Dr. Simeon and Makari with Batman trapped 
from the you know the the events of Final Crisis. If you didn't read Final Crisis and you're reading this, I think this stuff like those particular elements are very confusing. Yeah, they definitely definitely would be for people because yeah, this. Does, does this happen during Final Crisis or after Final Crisis? In the like between issues or, five and six or something. Okay. Okay. They need, to put, the, they need to put a little footnote or something in here that says that. <laughs> yeah. Well, because are these two issues in your collection of Batman R.I.P.? Yeah. And they're also in paperback collections of Final Crisis. And uh, in this omnibus that Justin and I have been working through, and many of our readers or, or listeners have purchased as well it has a little final crisis brief summary right before this issue starts. And it just sort of says, Orion of the new gods lies murdered at the scene of the crime. John Stewart finds a radion bullet in the concrete. Radion is toxic to the new gods. Batman goes too close to the truth and is kidnapped by granny goodness, a new God of apocalypse now possessing the body of alpha lantern Kraken inside dark sides, evil factory, the new gods of apocalypse, Makari and Simeon begin their work on Batman. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then there's <laughs> yeah. another one of I mean, those like... uh, at the end of all of this. <laughs> Jeff, you just took like two two lumps of Kirby and just spewed out a bunch of like high concept <laughs> crazy stuff. But, you know, I think it's important to talk about Final Crisis, which is Batman. It's a, it's a Jack Kirby love letter, as we say in the Papcast episode, we'll drop in here. But it is new gods trying to use Batman and harvest his memories to implant them into the bodies of clones so that they can create a Batman super army that have the same memories as Batman and then they can kill Batman and they'll be able to have used him. So the lump is actually this data collection device that stores and scrapes memories from a living thing that can then plant them into the bodies of other things. And all of that is important to final crisis and who those characters are and why Batman would have been kidnapped and all that stuff is something that you don't know at all. If you're reading the Batman RIP paperback and these issues are just at the back of it. Yeah. It's like yeah. dangerously close to what Hurt was doing too. Like he made three Batman soldiers based off of Bruce's. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, this, when it takes place, how long he was there, this whole thing has been, since since I first attempted to read this run has been the most confusing part for me to wrap my head around. I like these issues a lot, but I just can never quite, you know, there's a part of Final Crisis I just don't get. And that's sort of what I was trying to get, get at the beginning of this, which is like, I love these issues, but I think that they are very hard to put into the brain of people who are not willing to try and do a lot of work to figure out where it fits or if you're just fine like kind of going through the flow of it because like you don't need to have everything pinpointed right there but you know it makes me think that like i bet these two issues are hard on django and i would like to you know hear his thoughts on that because it is i think these two issues are maybe some of the least reader friendly parts of the whole morrison run oh yeah i i agree i mean i love them but yeah when i read them i'm, I'm like i try to imagine i always think you know, what if somebody's coming to this new and they've only been reading Batman for like this run or something, <laughs> and, and 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 you'd be like, who the fuck is Batwoman? What what is this? Are they on another planet? What's going on? Who's the Hamlet? Alfred thing. died. <laughs> oh, I love the Hamlet thing. God, Robin's dialogue with that. Oh man, 
No, I could feel the magnetic pulse of your boner from down the street, Roman. When I was... <laughs> and, how it, and how it makes Batman smile after Robin brings up that analogy, and he's still talking about it while they're fighting the Joker. And Batman's all grinning, going, this is great. I love this kid. <laughs> yeah. I love Robin. I, uh, it's just crazy to me that like even three people who have read a good chunk of comics and a whole listenership in 2020 are still like trying to understand Kirby. Like he, he was fucking ahead of his time. Yeah. And what's amazing is that like, after he left Marvel and went to DC and he started doing all of this fourth world stuff, the sales were so low that he ultimately they canceled them and he went back to Marvel and so much of the great DC stuff that has come out in the last 25 years have been mining those issues of the fourth world that Kirby spent, I don't even know, a couple years or whatever doing at DC that was ultimately kind of regarded as a failure. And then he went back to Mars. It's like, they didn't know what they had at that time. No one knows what they had at the time when, you know, Kirby was working with them. And that's why he was constantly abused and overworked and underpaid and not represented, but he's, you know, the most important gold mine of ideas that I think comics have ever had outside of, you know, the, the really obvious Stan Lee stuff, but yeah, Dan, yeah I'll make and, sure you know that. Yeah. And it's, uh, it is so fascinating. And, and, and it's interesting hearing like Justin, you were saying how, you know, you're, you spent time, you know, trying to understand Kirby as a, like on from the secondary sources and, you know, I'm a little older, so Kirby, <laughs> Kirby's Marvel stuff was part of my childhood, and so I, I feel lucky that I was able to, because I, be, I was able to buy, like, new Kirby comics, well, not me, my parents were able to buy new Kirby comics, like, at the grocery store for me, and, and I could read the Eternals, or, you know, Captain America, whatever he was doing then. That's well, why you're a wisdom oh, holder. You're yeah, an elder. Yeah. <laughs> Torchbearer of comics uh, enthusiasm. You highly influenced both Justin and I. But you uh, were you were reading issues when the DC stuff he was doing was coming out, right? I don't think so, because when I was a kid, I went through stages, and I think a lot of that part of my childhood, I was a Marvel guy mm -hmm. more than DC. And I was, I think the his new God stuff came out when I was I I was too young for that. I wasn't reading yet. Okay. Um, when that stuff came out, but I think maybe his Mr. Miracle was at the tail end of his Mr. Miracle run, maybe. But most of all the stuff I remember from childhood was that was Kirby was Marvel. Okay. Yeah, I just like even some of the Justice League cartoons of the '90s, which are really good. They all like they're. I mean, there's they're hugely episodic, and they go and kind of snapshot tons of stuff in the DC universe. But the through line of all of it is just fourth world stuff. Like all the cartoons rest on Kirby through the '90s, and I didn't even realize that. But it culminates with a Dark Side arc in the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Like it's all Kirby at the very like bottom of it all. Behind it all is the curb the fourth world stuff. It's like it's the unknown kind of basis of most of the dc stuff it's it's fucking awesome I yeah it. It, it really is incredible and I, I am very grateful to morrison for being somebody who i think is aware of that and is also aware of how little people really realize that and he pushes it on people and i i wouldn't have the respect or knowledge of kirby that i have without grant morrison just like justin was saying for a long time the kirby estate had most of his stuff kind of on lockdown it, 
there was very sporadic printings of a lot of like the DC stuff, for example. So only in the last like five years has it been a thing where you can get big collections of the old Kirby stuff. And I find it stuff like hard to read just because oh, yeah. like I don't have the mind for it and I'm not someone from the 60s. So I don't, I'm not like primed for that. So it's like, I've resigned myself. Like I may never get Kirby, but I think I can get to know him through Morrison and he's a good representation of Kirby's ideas, you know, cause like there is a part of Kirby that is impenetrable. Yeah. Um, I appreciate everyone for bearing with us on this episode. These two issues are really kind of all over the place and hard to suss out without talking about it from a top down perspective of the whole thing. So tomorrow's episode, we're going to talk uh, without as much concern for spoilers or um, avoiding what really is the framing device of this whole thing. So uh, yeah, look forward to that, everyone. Anything else in this issue we need to wrap up or dial in before we uh, get on out of here, you two precious boot scooters? This last page is really cool, this issue. <laughs> it's very dramatic. But also, you know, d- I think would be incredibly confusing if you weren't reading Final Crisis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, were, why is yeah. he in this <laughs> yeah. evil BAFTA tank? Yeah, what the hell is that? But, yeah. Um, yeah, my brain is, is scrambled eggs. I'll, I think I can maybe say my name to sign out. But other than that, I'm all lumped up. <laughs> we're all lumped up today. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I am with you very much but i am so grateful to have gotten to spend today talking about kirby with the two of you yeah it feels good to i mean we had to address the giant cosmic elephant in the room because he's <laughs> behind he's behind it all you know he's jack kirby is the giant cosmic elephant i love <laughs> yeah. that okay well on that note uh big thank you to dan panosian for doing the art on our info uh love you dan thank you very much huge thank you to the both of you guys if you have any questions or comments feedback send us an email at batman in quarantine at gmail.com record a voice memo send it in that way we would love it we've already been getting some emails i forgot about that let's before we get out of here get a real quick email from andrew carlson uh an avid listener who on very high speed has been reading through uh the batman stuff and listening to all the episodes so the great uh, destroyer of comics the great destroyer um so andrew says just in regards to the black glove I'm caught up, almost, but just wanted to write in to express how much I enjoyed this arc. Roman was so right. I didn't realize how much of an Agatha Christie's and then there were none reference the whole story was until he mentioned it in episode two. It's so accurate. For fellow listeners interested in a fun murder mystery based on the novel, watch Identity with John Cusack and Ray Liotta. (laughs) However, this was my first experience with J.H. Williams III and wowzers. It's just absolutely gorgeous. The fact that in one issue, he constantly is swapping between the older halftone style, a painterly hyper-realistic style, and the classic comic thick ink lines and a super emotional Sienkiewiczian Sienkiewiczian? watercolor looking page. (laughs) I've never seen an artist show that much range in a few moment of pages. It's incredibly impressive. Uh, and this man felt confident enough to do it. Stay awesome, Andrew Carlson. Thank you, Andrew. I just love hearing about other people's excitement and enthusiasm for this run. That parts the kimono a little bit on the, the two-week buffer zone we've created on uh, recording and storing episodes to give me time to edit and upload them. But, J.H. Love it. Kimono parted. Love, kimono parted. Absolutely. Um, all right, everyone. 
Thank you, Andrew. If you have comments, write those in. We'll see everybody next time. I hope that you listen to and enjoy the final crisis episode that either came up right before this one or right after it. It's a whale of an episode. And I don't think we edited it too much because there was just too much in there. I think it's like a two hour podcast. So if you are hungry for content, that will be in and around this episode in the feed and it should keep you going for a couple of days. I love you, everybody. I love you, Justin. I love you, Roman. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. I love you guys.